Friday morning, my wife made bacon cupcakes for breakfast. All right? The cupcake wrapper was a piece of bacon that you put in the little cupcake tray that you put in the oven. You, put the, you wrap it with bacon and then filled with mashed potatoes and cheese. Shut your mouth. Okay? I'm telling you what, I praise God I'm not 400 pounds because the way my wife cooks, it is out of this world. Um, anyway, y'all like food. Is that okay for us to talk about it today? We're, a bunch, we're a, bunch of, a bunch of Baptists anyway, so we like to talk about food. But I want to ask you the question, what are you hungry for? And this is somewhat of a rhetorical question. And uh, Pastor Robert is going to throw up a slide for me about our physical hungers. And this is something called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Now that probably means a hill of beans to you, but I want you to know that Maslow was a psychologist at the earlier part of his century. And what he did was he saw the primary motivations of individuals. And it starts at the bottom of the pyramid. These are physiological or physical motivations, which means most people primarily start with primary hungers, being breathing, food, and water. That's what's going to dictate a majority in our life. And it probably already dictates a majority of your life because even after you're done with breakfast, you start asking the question, well, what's for lunch? And you're already wondering, you know, what's going to be, is grandma's going to have the special today? Or is, uh, you know, Applebee's going to have the appetizer you want or so on and so forth. But, but we're dominated by these things. I mean, most of our life is dominated by uh, uh, getting a job and, and getting to the grocery store so that we can feel this basic craving of physical needs. Now, after we've met physical needs, we move up the chart to safety needs. And this is security. Security of body, having a secure job, having resources like a car that can get you back and forth to work. Security of the family, uh, morality, are we safely doing things to our body, health, and property. So we're going to move from, you know, after I've fed myself, now am I secure? Is my heat pump working tonight? Are my doors locked? Uh, uh, do I have the, the, uh, the, the, the 22 rifle beside the door? And for some of you, yes, you do. And uh, we, we're going to move to those things. And, and after we feel safe, once we have food and shelter, we can move to the third level, which is love and belonging. Therefore, in our life, we're going to look for friendships, family, intimacy to, to satisfy the needs of our heart. So we've went from body, mind, heart, and then self-esteem, which is going to be confidence and respect. After you've done the earlier three levels, the rest of your life is going to be dominated by esteem. You're going to try to perform in a work setting. You're going to try to perform in a family or social setting so that you build the respect of others, that you leave a legacy for those around you. Now, here's what Maslow found. Maslow found that most people were consumed with the lower four levels. So they never got into what he calls self-actualization, which was creativity, spontaneity, problem solving. I'm going to call this upper level the level of purpose. That is self-actualization. And he found that most individuals on the earth spend the majority of their life focusing on the bottom four levels. Do I have confidence? Do I have self-esteem, respect of others? 
Do I have adequate friendships and family life in the blue level? They are hungering for those lower four things, and until those cravings are satisfied, they can't move up to what I'll call the pinnacle of purpose. Thank you, Pastor Robert. You can go back to a black screen for us. I want us to look at a hunger for God this morning, and I want us to look in the Gospel of Luke. As we ask the question, what are we hungry for? Luke chapter 2, when you get there, say word. Praise the Lord, we're done talking about Simeon. He was good, we enjoyed him. We get to talk about a sweet old lady. Her name is Anna. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 36, this is what the scripture says. Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity or from her marriage. This woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Now let's pause for a moment. Let's remember our context here in Luke chapter 2. Mary and Joseph have just brought their baby to the temple to be uh, uh, dedicated and consecrated before the Lord. Simeon spoke the word of prophecy over there in the coming because of the eighth day for the circumcision. Simeon spoke the proclamation of prophecy and the prayer of praise. And now we move from Simeon to, to a really, really old widow. That Luke, one of the most intellectual of the gospel writers, chooses to reserve a portion in his gospel for a really, really old widow named Anna. And it says that Anna was of a great age. I like that. If you don't want to tell anyone they're old, you just say, you are of a great age. <laughs> that really makes it seem respectable and, and admirable. You have a really great age about you. Now, I want us to pay attention to the fact that she stayed at the temple day and night with prayers and fastings and worship. And I want us to reflect from the scripture a few reasons why she stayed at the temple. Number one, it says that she, uh, in, in verse 38, spoke to all those who were there looking for the redemption in Jerusalem. Remember, this is the same thing Simeon was doing. So she was at the temple day and night with prayers and fastings looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. She had a hunger for the things of God. She had a knowledge of the a knowledge of the prophecies of God which said that there will come a Messiah and so she spent her life in waitful expectation of what God was about to do. Coming and interceding before the Lord about what God was about to do. Uh, secondly, she no longer had a husband but was married to the Lord. Uh, I don't think we get any indication that Anna's life was lacking in any point. She had been married for seven years, and then her husband died, and had been a widow up to 84 years. Now, we'll talk about, does that mean she was 84 years old, or had she been a widow 84 years? We'll talk about that in a second. Anyway, the point is, she was a widow for a very long time, and she was serving the Lord with prayer and fasting and worship. Also, what we gather is that those who were at the temple at this particular event, based on verse 38, is they were also people looking for the consolation of Israel. 
Therefore, one of the main reasons that Anna was there and the group of people were there is because they were waiting on the redemption of Jerusalem. They were waiting on God to do something. They were hungry in expectation of, man, God literally is going to do something. Let me tell you what, your, your activity in the life of the church is dependent on how, you, how faithful you believe God is. When you know that God is faithful and God will do something in your life and that God will, his prophecies are true, then you're going to serve him with joy and gladness. Amen? Anna believed this. God is who he says he is and he's going to do something. So the passion and energy that we serve the Lord with will be related to our desire of seeing God move and also our desire of seeing Christ return. Man, what a perfect introductory song that Miss Pam just said on that midnight hour when God, when Jesus Christ comes back because here's the thing, Anna was waiting for the Lord the first time and he came as a baby. My friends, the second time he's not coming as a baby, he's coming as a warrior. He's coming on the backs of mighty horses with an angelic army and the heavenly hosts ready to to bring justice and righteousness to the earth. So if Anna was excited about the baby, then praise God, I'm going to be excited about the warrior because he's coming to rescue his bride. No longer are we waiting for the redemption of Israel, but we're waiting on the redemption of the earth. So our job is the same as Anna, the same as John the Baptist, preparing the way for the Lord. We've got a lot to do, amen? I mean, if we think our job's done, then we're, we're missing the point. <laughs> we're preparing the way for the Lord to come, making straight the highways and the hedges, going to those who are of the uttermost. So what do we know about Anna? Well, Luke mentions Simeon and Anna side by side, and I believe that's an indication of the wholeness of Christ's work, that Christ was coming for everyone, for male and female, Jew and Gentile, red, yellow, black, and white, they're precious in his sight. He's coming for everybody. He's coming for the men and the women because they're going to all be involved in the kingdom. Secondly, we know that Anna was very old. Now, some of you in your Bible, it says that Anna was an 84-year-old widow, But the King James says she has been a widow for 84 years. How many of you see that in your King James? She has been a widow for 84 years. Well, I tried to do the math in my head. If it was common back then to get married at around the age of 16, if she got married at 16 and lived with her husband for seven years, and then 84 years from that point, she was a widow, as the King James says, she was 107 years old. So I'm going to go with the traditional interpretation on this. Anna was an energetic little fireball, firecracker prophetess of God who had lived 84 years serving the Lord, amen? And she wasn't lacking nothing. Let me tell you, if you're 107 and you're staying at the temple day and night, you don't need the comforts of this world, you're doing pretty good. I mean, I hope I'm doing that when I'm 67 and 77, serving the Lord like that. She was doing good. It's not just about that she was old, but that the energy was still there. She had a Holy Spirit energy. May we pray today that God gives us an Anna anointing on our life so that we can serve the Lord all the days of our life. What a blessing it must be, like Neely Beecham, to have walked with Christ for so many blessed years and still be in God's house. Amen? Brother uh, uh, John Vermillion, he's at First Assembly Living Center, 
He's not able to make it, but every time I go, brother, he's sharp as a tack. He's drilling me. What scripture do you preach Sunday? What's the church doing? How many people has been saved? How many people has been baptized? On and on and on. Still sharp as a tack. And may we pray we have that anointing on our life. We also know this about Anna. She never left the temple. She was having a heavenly party all night and all day. She was a, she didn't know how, she didn't need to go out and drink because she was immersed in the presence of the Lord. I mean, she was filled with the joy of the Lord in the temple all day long. But did you know that you and I can have that joy too today? You and I can have that same joy which Anna had, being with the Lord all night and all day, being his presence. You say, well, pastor, I can't be at church all night and all day. But yes, you can, because in Anna's day, there was a physical temple where the Spirit of God dwelt. But today, there is no longer a physical temple, but a spiritual temple in the heart of the believer. So you and I are a walking temple of God. You and I are at the temple night and day. I believe Anna was a picture of what every New Testament believer is with the presence of the Lord night and day. And if that's the case, I pray that there's a Holy Spirit energy that comes over our life because of that anointing. I think when Anna got plugged into the power of the Spirit, man, she was in the Word, she was in prayer and in fasting. It blessed her life. It overflowed. She drank from the saucer constantly. It washed over her. It is literally possible to have communion with the Spirit of God all day long. But today, I want to talk about the spiritual practices of Anna. And in particular, the reference to her fasting. Now, I want to give you three keys today about the principle of fasting. And if the Holy Spirit leads you, then you too can start implementing this Principle in your spiritual life. Now, I know you say, well, Pastor, you started out talking about baking cupcakes. Now you're talking about fasting. Well, praise the Lord, it's going to be a better hunger than what we started out with. If you're taking notes, I want you to know this first principle. Fasting is not a biblical command. It is a biblical principle. What is the difference? Some will say, well, the Bible doesn't say that we have to fast. Well, you're probably exactly right. There are many things that the Bible doesn't command. For example, the Muslims are commanded to pray five times a day. The Bible doesn't command us how many times we should pray, but it does say pray without ceasing. So the command in a Bible is not a rule, but a mindset. All other religions have rules. You have to do this much a day. The New Testament doesn't say that. It says pray without ceasing. Always be in a spirit of worship. Always be in a spirit of prayer. That doesn't mean I'm talking to God all day long. But it means my spirit is in tune and walking with them. If you walk with a friend, you go for a friend on a 30-minute walk. You may be silent for five minutes, but you know that your friend is still there at every moment. Your friend is always there to have communion with. This is the practice of prayer in the New Testament. Also, the Bible doesn't command how much scripture we should read each day. Wouldn't it make it easier for us if we were told read two chapters a day? That'd be easy. We'd know exactly what to do, but we're not given that simple instruction. But the Bible does say in the book of Psalms, blessed is he who meditates on the law of God day and night. We're not given an amount. We're given a mindset. Whether you read one verse to meditate on day and night or whether you read 10 chapters to meditate on day and night, as long as that mindset is present in our life, we are fulfilling God's blessedness in that joy. A biblical command gives us a rule, but a biblical principle 
gives us a mindset. The question today is not how much should I, but how much do we want to? Not how much should you, but how much do you want? You see, if a biblical command is about religion, then a biblical principle is about relationship. My wife doesn't say, you have to spend two hours with me every day. The question is not how much do we have to spend. The question is how much do we want to. That's what relationship is about. Not a command, but a principle. That God is in love with us. Literally in love with you. And I don't know about you, but I like to be around people that love each other. They're normally exciting people to be a part of. I want that presence in my life. I've seen a great increase among the Christian majority to desire uh, religious formulas. People want a formula for prayer. People want a formula for their devotion. People want a formula for success. But what happens is when a formula becomes the object instead of the Lord, we have established another set of religious laws instead of a relationship. Christianity is not about formulas. It's about love. It's about loving the Lord with our heart, mind, soul, and strengths. I've said this many times over the past several weeks, that God is not calling you to a set of rules. God is not calling you to a set of do's and don'ts. He is calling you to be his bride. He is calling you to be his child, the one who is in love with him, and he is in love with us. That's what he's called us to, a relationship, to enjoy him and the blessings which come from that eternal relationship with him. And let me tell you something, those blessings don't start when we get to heaven. Those blessings start now. The blessed presence of God starts now because you are a walking temple of the Holy Ghost. So with that being said, I want you to know this, that fasting is a regular Christian discipline. Okay, let me say that again. Fasting is a regular Christian discipline. We can observe this in the pattern of the New Testament and that it was not about who was super fanatical. It was the normal practice. That's why Jesus said, when you pray, do not do it like the hypocrites, and when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites. Jesus partnered prayer and fasting hand in hand. He didn't say if you pray or if you fast. He said when you fast, do not do as the hypocrites do. He was calling us to a lifestyle that is about blessedness that comes through him. Many people think fasting is about a lifestyle of denial. That's not the truth. Fasting is about a lifestyle of joy. We're going to talk about this in a second. You see, it may seem like I'm focusing on fasting today, but I want you to know that all those three things which Anna did go hand in hand. Fasting, prayer, and worship. She did all these on a regular basis. Fasting, prayer, and worship. And I'll tell you why. Fasting gives up food. Prayer gives up burden. And worship gives up praise. Oh, that's a good word right there. You see, all those are linked together. Because when you give up one, you're linked to the other. She was simply reflection of the enjoying the presence with God. Once our spiritual mentality changes from a burden to being full with joy, then our practices are no longer about commands. Well, the Bible says we must fast, so I'm going to fast. That's not what it's about. The Bible says enjoy God. Enjoy him forever. This is, this is life. This is the work that you may know him. 
Who has saved us and sent his son? I encounter so many people that have questions like, is this wrong? How much is right? Should I tithe before taxes or after taxes? Now you see, those are good questions, but my normal response is, well, what do you want to do? What do you want to give? That's the question. How much do you want? Do you want to give a certain amount? Or do you want to just love Jesus? That's what we need to ask ourselves. Do we want what is right or what is best? That's a good question. So first, I want us to know that fasting is not a biblical command. It is a biblical principle. Secondly, fasting is not about being hungry. It is about being full. Fasting is not about lacking something. It's about being overwhelmed with something. So that when we give up something small, we're getting something better. This is what fasting is about. We always think that fasting is giving up something, but if in return you get more time with your heavenly Father, then how have we lost anything? If we get a greater blessing, how have we sacrificed? It's not a sacrifice. God is not asking you to be a pious monk who beats himself with a whip over the shoulder and goes around inflicting pain in yourself. God's not asking you to do that. He's asking you to enjoy him. Enjoy it as a lifestyle. And whatever draws us into the presence of God and draws us into that relationship is a blessing. So let me say a good point. Fasting is feasting with the Father. <laughs> How many times did anybody invite you to a Super Bowl party or a, or a feast or a get-together or a, a throw-down or barbecue and you said, I just think I'm not going to be full. Might not have enough food. Might not have enough uh, Coca-Cola. I'm not sure if I'll enjoy it. Now, let me tell you, God is you to give up something he's calling you to be overflowing with something better to be filled up with something better you see in Christianity it's not about what we give up it's all about what we have received through Jesus Christ if I have the choice to go play golf or spend time with my wife I will more than likely spend time with my wife <laughs> no one says, what are you doing? Well, I'm fasting from golf today. <laughs> no, you're not. You got the better thing, my friend. Anytime you got the better thing, it's not a fast. This is why Jesus said, don't go around like the hypocrite and boast about your fasting. Because they're saying, look at what I'm giving up. And this is opposite. It's not about what you've given up. It's about what you're enjoying this is why he says anoint your head with oil and put on a smile because in the fast it should be a rich presence of God. Not a, not a <laughs> slavery lifestyle where the fasting is causing us to frown and be sad. That's not what it's about. It's about enjoying the presence of God more. So the key with Anna is not about what she didn't have. What she did have. She had the overwhelming presence of God, day and night. How many of you would like to have that in 2014? The overwhelming presence of God. Because that gives back to my question today, what are we hungry for? You see, we will prioritize our life around what we're hungry for. 
If we're hungry for things of the world and carnal things, we'll prioritize our life around those things. But if we're hungry for the presence of God, we'll prioritize our life around that. Amen? You see, evidently Anna's lifestyle was really healthy because she lived a very long time. And I'm not really going to spend a lot of time on the health benefits, but let me say this. The average American is suffering from overweight and high cholesterol, so we can either be like Americans or like Anna. Evidently, Anna's practice was healthy. You see what I'm saying? Some of you are saying, well, Pastor, how do I fast? How do I implement this spiritual principle? Well, you can start with giving up one meal on one day a week. So let's say on, let's say on Tuesday, you want to give up lunch. So you can spend the entire lunch break in the Word. That's a start. And let me tell you, I guarantee you'll have a better day than if you go eat that big old sandwich that you normally do. I guarantee that when you get full on the world, you will, on the Word, you will have a better day. I promise you, it's a principle. And let me tell you, God never lets down. God does not let down. And if you're really a go-getter, then choose a whole day without food. So maybe on Wednesdays, you're going to forego food all day, and you're going to reset your system, but you're also going to reset your spirit. You're going to spend time with God during your breakfast, lunch, dinner, prayer, meditate, and be filled with the presence of the Lord instead of earthly things. I was reading some commentaries that it was a common practice among early Christians to go without food one day every week of their life. And a lot of Christians went without food two days every week of their life. This was a common practice among early Christians. So what happened is they saw the pattern of fasting in the New Testament and concluded from that that they should be observing it too. I think we're on to something important. Now, here's what I want you to do. Pastor Robert, I want you to think back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Maslow observed that most people put their basic needs first and work up from there. So their life becomes an upward climb. I'm going to put food first, and then I'm going to put security, and then I'm going to focus on family, and then I'm going to focus on my confidence, and then I'm going to focus on purpose. All right? Let me give you a good hint, friend. Jesus gave us a completely different system. Jesus unlocked a path of life that is opposite to normal human beings. And let me share with you about Jesus' path of life. Because, see, most people are going to get up to level four esteem, and they're going to spend their time there. What do people think about me? Are people really respecting me? Are people caring about me? They're going to spend their life there and never tap into purpose. But Jesus gave us a different system. He says in Matthew 6, 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. You see, Maslow wasn't a Christian. But he observed something correct about people, that they will feel the needs of their flesh first and then work up from there. You see, I would put a sixth pinnacle on this pyramid, which is a relationship with God. And a relationship with God is then going to define purpose. Watch this. And then our purpose is going to define how we operate with people. 
How we operate our esteem, our identity is going to be based on our purpose. And once we have an identity, then we can operate with family more appropriately. And after we can operate with family appropriately, then our concerns for safety and, and the things of our, our life and our property are going to be in proper perspective. And food, we'll, we'll worry about that later. Jesus He did not institute a bottom-up philosophy of life. He instituted a top-down philosophy of life. Get the top thing right, and then everything else will follow. This is why Jesus, he wasn't a psychologist, but you know what? He created the human heart, and he knew something that C.S. Lewis says, that in the heart of every individual is a desire that they cannot fill apart from life with God. So even these people who self-actualize creativity and problem-solving, all of that, they still is a longing, a desire for God. This is true hunger. To be one at peace with God. Amen. Thank you for that, Pastor. So what we have, we don't have a bottom-up approach. We have what I call trickle-down blessedness. <laughs> or trickle-down righteousness. Once the heart is righteous, once the soul is righteous, then everything else trickles down. We get right with God. No longer does our self-confidence come from those around us, as in the bottom-up approach, but our self-confidence comes from the one above us in a top-down approach. No longer does our sense of love, belonging, and relationship depend on how people treat us. Now it depends on how we've already been treated through God. Is anybody still awake today? I mean, I throw schematics up here and I lose people. But let me tell you something. Jesus said, focus on him first. That's all we need to know today. And everything else will fall into place. And be honest, it doesn't matter if they fall into place. Because if I'm right with God, I have everything. I, don't need, I, can, I can be in the presence of the Lord night and day. It doesn't matter what people think. It doesn't matter what family thinks. Because half of them are going to think we're crazy anyway when we start living for God. You see? Matter of fact, the pyramid messes up the whole system. When you put Jesus on top as the cornerstone, the rest of the pyramid really doesn't hold itself together because he's going to mess it up. But if you got the cornerstone, then life will work out, I promise. You see, what fasting does is it cuts out the bottom of the pyramid. Once we cut out the most basic need of our life, and teach the flesh that it's not in control, then we go from a bottom-up approach to a top-down approach. If you want to fix the rest of the pyramid, cut out the foundation. And the foundation is the flesh saying, I need food. I need to be satisfied. I need to eat. When we can teach the flesh that the flesh is not in control, we remove the pyramid and put God first. That's what fasting does. It teaches us how to put the spirit in control. This is why we don't hear about much fasting in the American church. Because the American church has become a masked form of hedonism. The prosperity gospel says that all these things in the rest of the uh, pyramid are important in your satisfaction in life. And if you don't get them, something must be wrong with you. So the American gospel is really masked hedonism. That says the blessed life is a, a filling of all the other satisfactions. No, no, no. This is the opposite of what Jesus was instructing. He was saying you don't need all these other things. You don't need all these social relationships. You don't need all these material things. Because the life in Christ is that our needs are already met. 
Once we tap into a different hunger, then we will find a different satisfaction. Once we change what we're hungry for, then we'll change our satisfaction. Amen? As long as we're hungry for worldly things, that hunger always exists. Because what happened? You eat lunch, you're ready for dinner. Do you know the more you eat, the more hungry you are? It should be opposite. I figured out when I go to lunch and I have a really big lunch, I want a really big dinner. It stretches the stomach out. You want more. It says, ooh, he gave me a 1,000 calories. I want it again, yes. But when I eat a small portion, then I'm okay. Here's what fasting teaches us. Body's not in control. I can give it up and I'll still be okay. And trust me, you will. And it'll be hard. You'll come lunchtime and your coworkers are going out uh, uh, to get uh, your Japanese hibachi sushi, shimakake, <laughs> I don't know, all those things. <laughs> but you don't need it. I'm sure there's something out there like that. <laughs> this is why Jesus says in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. We missed the last part. We always say we need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We need to be more hungry for God. The point of the passage is they will be filled. That when we're hungry from God, we will receive God. We will have that eternal contentment when we're hungry for God. I think Anna was a content individual because she felt she filled her life day and night with a hunger for God. Fasting is not about hungering for righteousness, but about being filled with the presence. That's the end result. Hungering for righteousness leads to being filled with the presence of God. Lastly, I mention this. Fasting does not increase God's voice, but it diminishes our flesh. Okay? Once the flesh is diminished, the voice that the Spirit speaks becomes more perceptible. Fasting is like the tuner button on our spiritual radio. I had so many scriptures in the New Testament when the, uh, uh, the believers in the book of Acts were fasting and praying when they had a decision to make. That was their common practice. When they had a decision, they would fast to tune in their spiritual radio, hear the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's like a tuner on our spiritual radio. It weeds out the other signals so we can hear what the Spirit is speaking. So my question for you today, if you are not satisfied in life, it's because you're hungry for the wrong things. In order to change our satisfaction, we must change our hunger. We must put Christ first and let the contentment and the peace that flows from him trickle down into every other relationship. Because once I'm content with Christ, then I can be content when people treat me the wrong way. I can be blessed when people persecute me because I'm not loving them based on how they interact with me. I'm loving them from a trickle-down righteousness approach of what God has already done. Amen? Let's stand for a word of prayer today. Father, I'm praying in Jesus' name that we submit our carnal desires to you, which are simply a reflection of an eternal longing that you've placed in our spirit to show that we are designed to be met with needs from a Jehovah Jireh. Our body is a reflection that we have a craving for something outside of ourself and that something is a relationship with you.
So God, I pray that you would place in the heart, in the spiritual belly of believers this morning, a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. (laughs) That we're so hungry for righteousness that we'll give up food to be filled on you. And God, that through all things, you draw us closer into your presence, to a sweeter walk with you. And God, that we can have an Anna anointing all the days of our life to serve you with joy and energy. Father God, whatever you have to do in the hearts of believers today, may you have your will and way. If there's someone ready to come and profess faith in Christ, because that spiritual hunger is there to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, Lord, may they walk the aisle this morning. Secondly, if there's someone who, like Anna, fellowshiped at the house of the Lord, they're looking today for a spiritual home to join as a member, Lord, maybe today's the day they'll come and say, I want to be a part of friendship. God, may you receive all the glory. Amen.